There it is. As we open our Bibles, we also open our hearts that these words of truth may fall upon the very fabric of our lives. May these ancient scriptures come alive within us to inspire, to heal, to cleanse, to teach, to restore, and to guide our hearts and minds. Lord, come weave your words of life in us. May we all feel safe with each other, safe to think and question, safe to ask for help, and safe to share our lives with you, our loving Heavenly Father. Amen. You may be seated. Turn with me to, let's start in Genesis. That feels good today. Right at the beginning of the story of the scriptures, you get this pronouncement. Pronouncement about the very nature of nature, of the world, and of who we are. And what we get is this rhythm of God saying, in the beginning, created the heavens and the earth. This is, by the way, poetry written to slaves that are in Egypt, right? This is, however, this was collected, likely written by Moses. God inspires him, gives us this image of what and vision of what it is, like what the beginning of the story is like. And he tells them that God is the creator of all things, that the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And we read, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And then next up, we read about the waters being parted. And then we start reading about the lights being turned on. And we start going through, like, let the land produce living creatures according to their kind. And the refrain that we get again and again and again that comes up over and over. Do you know what that is? What's the refrain? The poetic impulse. What is it? It's good. It's good. And so sometimes in uh, Christian circles we talk about original sin, but we need to make sure that we begin with original blessing. We were made good. This is actually where the story starts. Things are marred. Things are distorted. Sin enters into the fold, and when Paul says, surely I've been sinful since birth, he's not lying. He's recognizing I was born into sin and born into the brokenness of the systems around me. There is a bent inside me, but the beginning of our story of humanity and God's intent is that all things, including us, was good. In fact, he gets to us, and he gets says, very good. Now, there are all these commands in the beginning of the story. These first people that were called out, this Hebrew tribe to be a blessing to the world. There's a debate about these commands, right? There is like, what is the greatest commandment, the heaviest commandment? How do we apply these? And these commands are all, think of this more like in some ways like marriage covenant. That's literally actually the, the, the way that the Ten Commandments like sits in the ancient language, just like a marriage covenant. This is how we're going to roll together. This is what it is to, um, to have life and life to the full. And we read in Deuteronomy 6 about these commands. We read, these are the commands and decrees and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. So that you, your children and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commandments that I give you so that you may enjoy long life. I just want you to circle that word enjoy for a hot second. Enjoy. The reason for these commands 
The reason for these scriptures, the reason for these decrees that will help you be in awe of God, fear the Lord, have a pro- recognize your proper place in the world, I give them to you so that you may enjoy long life. Is that the image that you have of God's commands? Leviticus 23, deep cut. We get the list of all of the feasts. These first people are commanded to feast. We read in Leviticus 23, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, these are my appointed festivals, the appointed festivals of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. So what is God like? He's appointing festivals. You have in verse 3, we have the Sabbath, right? We know this very well. Take a day. Verse 4, the Passover and festival and leavened bread. Verse 9, we have the offering of the first fruits. Verse 15, we have the festival of weeks. We gave a sermon on that during the pandemic. I was preaching in a little hut. Festival of trumpets. Verse 26, we have the atonement. And this is where I want to step back into the text. The Lord said to Moses, the 10th day of this seventh month in the day of atonement, hold a sacred assembly and deny yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. Do not do any work on that day because it is the day of atonement. When atonement is made for you before the Lord your God, those who do not deny themselves on that day must be cut off from your people. I will destroy from among their people anyone who does any work on that day. You shall do, you shall do. it says again, no work on that day. Anyone who doesn't, in case you're confused, like, like just destroy him, get him out of there. They're not, they're not, they don't, they're not you. They're not you. Someone asked me about our path. If you haven't been around, it's going to take too long to explain, but basically like a shared rule of life that we developed as a community. And the idea is As we continue to return to this, this will literally mark us off. Do you want to be a partner or a leader in this church? You have to commit not just to some theology and not just like, I like your vision statement, but actually committing to a way of life together, which is a little hardcore. And we're okay with it. And one of the things on there someone was asking me was about Sabbath. Well, I mean, I really struggle with Sabbath. Well, yeah, it's really hard in our culture to do this. But this is something that Jesus did. This is something we believe is incredibly important counterformation in our given cultural moment. And we believe we need to do this and try it. This is not that there's no grace or mercy. Here's why I say this, is that in a similar way, you don't have to be a partner or a leader in our church. There's totally an option. That's your call. That's my call, right? I can just say, no, I'm actually, I'm out. My own invention. I'm done. I don't want to do that. But to be a part of this church is to Sabbath. If you'd like to be like a, one of the, the leaders and participants in helping move forward in commitment to a rule of life in this church, if you want to be bonded in in that sort of way, you got to actually stop once a week. We actually want this stuff to matter and not just be some things we agree on a piece of paper. Can I get an amen? It's not about being legalistic. It's not about pushing. It's about saying there's some things that Jesus did that we think we should do too because we're supposed to do what he did. So I say all that, just to go back to this text, Paul is, I mean, sorry, Paul. (laughs) In Deuteronomy, we're reading, do not work. You will feast. And by the way, feasting here is not like potato salad. This is ancient Near East. You would hike for days, singing as you hiked with family and friends, singing these psalms of ascent. And as you went up the mountain, there'd be like call and response. Like this is the original like OPP, hey-ho. Like this is like, 
This is the call out. <laughs> Someone got that. Thank you. This was not, can we be out of here by 8.15? The feast of Shavuot was eight days. Sabbath was this thing you prepared for all week. Days on end, eating long meals, telling stories. Basically, God is saying, if you insist on working during times I've commanded you to party, I'm going to kill you. It's not that far a stretch, right? You just, yeah, it's just peace. It's not, I don't love you. It's just you're not a part of the tribe. We rest. We party in this family. That's what we do. There is a rhythm. Stop, rest, enjoy, focus, worship. We think that's so harsh. But as it's been said many times, if you don't celebrate and you don't reflect, you're dying already. It's already death. See, the goodness of God wasn't abstract. Celebrating and affirming the goodness of God was central to life. This is the God who commands the party. Psalm 145, verse 4. I should start in verse 3. One generation, we read, will commend your works to another. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. Like one generation commends your works. They will tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. It's not just your ability to party well. It's passing down this value to the next generation. Acknowledging and seeing goodness and majesty in your life, right? The things that are meant to be passed down here. The celebration of your abundant goodness. Commend those works. Commend the mighty acts. Commend the beautiful things that God has done. Keep passing it down and passing it down and passing it down. My parents were, um, I'll bring the stool back here. My parents were uh, first generation, our first generation Christians. Their, their parents were not followers of Jesus. And so it's been so interesting. They were like trying to figure out what is a Christian family like? So my dad was like avidly reading books. My mom was just intuitively picking up on truth everywhere. That's how they rolled. <laughs> Let me read something about it. My mom's like, yeah, I knew that yesterday. It's like, how? I don't know. And, and, and so they were building a family culture to try to figure out how do we even establish. And my dad, he, he looking back in the scriptures was like, we need to create rhythms where we are giving thanks. So songs that we would sing at the dinner table. Like meals that would get passed down and began to get eaten every single birthday. Like establishing rhythms of what it looked like when we vacationed and rest. It was like them going back to scriptures and making sense of how do we build a culture where we feast and we fast and we stop. And it has been fascinating to watch my brothers and sister now two generations into being followers of Jesus begin to like take hold of all of this rejoicing 
and push it forward. It's so critical that when we talk about passing down the faith to the next generation, we're not just talking about like, I don't know, sex ethics. We're talking about joy and partying and stopping and celebration. Pass it along. What conceptions of God were you handed? Even if you're like, yeah, 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 I kind of know this stuff. We talk about this stuff now and again. What still kicks around in your head about what God is like and thus who you are to be in the world? Were you taught about the God who parties well? John 6.10. I'm going to hit on a couple ideas about what it means to celebrate well, to take seriously the good of creation that the Bible begins with in Genesis 1. Jesus said, have the people sit down. So this is the feeding of the 5,000. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. He begins. Oh, the rest of the text isn't there, is it? Let's turn with me to John 6.10. (laughs) We see Jesus a couple of times when he goes and sets up a meal. Where you don't see Jesus, you see Jesus giving thanks. What you don't see is Jesus ever like blessing the food. I used to lose sword drills all the time, as you can see. It's a bad pastor's kid. John 6. There were plenty of grass in that place. They sat down, about 5,000 men. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled the 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw this sign, People said, surely he was a prophet who has come into the world. Foreign to the world of Jesus is this idea of blessing the food. We see him give thanks for the food. We see him rejoice in it. We read in Psalm 24, right, that the earth is God's and everything in it. God says the earth is good. God, there's nothing more to add to this. It's a small little detail. But in a passage where you would expect something that's kind of built into much of our language, like you're doing something to the food, now making it sacred, we don't see it. Food comes from the earth. So it's elementally good, which obviously raises theological questions about like the Twinkie, but I'm talking about like good and wholesome food. It can't, it can't be any more blessed. You might have to bless a Twinkie. Uh, right? So there's a problem sometimes when, when we get into this, this situation where there is the sacred over here and sort of rooted the, the incarnational over here. When we divide the world up into spiritual and not spiritual. No. Another idea around what it is to celebrate and give thanks. What happens when you take something that's good and you exploit it or you destroy it? What happens is you can sometimes end up rejecting the whole. First Timothy 4. 
We read the Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God in prayer. Nothing is to be rejected. Can you tell a little bit like what he actually thinks, right? He's like the writer here to this early church is fired up. Fired up. Be wary of people, we read him saying, who say abstain from that who refuse to acknowledge the goodness and write everything off. This isn't a command against fasting. This is a recognition that everything is good. And just because you might not have the sort of enough grace for that, or just because that's something you actually need to cut off because that could cause you to sin, he's going, there are people who are trying to heap these laws up on God's good creation and sort of somehow make these things sort of magical and spiritual and all of this less than. Paul says, be wary of these people. We have to always reclaim the good. That's why we, we use this um, little rubric for think, or this like, filter for when things enter into the life of our church. Certain things in our culture need to be rejected because they're just bad. Some things need to be received because they're good and pure and line up with scriptures, and many things need to be redeemed. But that's another sermon altogether. Finally, one last big idea, Mark 6, if you turn with me to Mark 6. Christian life is not just a bunch of things that we do. We read the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary Jesus is going around from village to village, and his instruction to them is when we carry our authority, we read in verse 30, like things get crazy. He's telling the stories of what happens as you engage as a follower of Jesus in the world with authority. You see things driven out, and you see people set free, and you see like good news proclaimed to the outcast. And, and then... He says, sometimes you need to go away and rest. Right in the midst of following Jesus, serving and laying down your life for him here in this text, we get an invitation to get out of there. There are moments, a true walk with Jesus, where you relax and where you can detach and where you take stock and where you share stories where you build monuments, which is just a very Christian idea, a way of saying we, we remember the goodness of God here and we mark the time. Do you have a way in your life, in your family, in your rhythms to stop and mark the time? Right, you guys are about to mark the time. You're about to have a wedding. You're going to go back to that, I hope at least, and you're going to have an anniversary. And for, you're not going to forget that ever. 
you, you tattoo that right here. You remember that day and you come back to it. We know about this. We know about anniversaries. We know about rhythms. We know about birthdays. That person was born. That's like baseline celebration, right? You were born that day. Let's give it a little attaboy and blow out some candles, right? Marriage makes sense. We're beginning a whole new life. That's low-lying fruit. I'm talking about that time where, like, you got that job and you didn't think you'd get it. I'm talking about that time where you saw healing, that, that, that time where your friend was on the brink and the Lord, like, stepped in with family and pulled them back. That time that God, like, you thought there was no way you were going to, like, you were going to see a way through and God made a way through. Do you have a way of marking the time of stopping and slowing? Remembering that God made everything good. Remember that we don't cut up the world into the spiritual and the secular. Remembering the God who commands us to relax and rest and enjoy. So a closing thought. The primary tasks of followers of Jesus might be, maybe a better way to say it would be, one of the primary tasks is to party well. I don't know how much the church has to say to the world if we don't throw better parties. If anyone takes seriously these commands that God is good, if anyone trusts the gospel of Jesus Christ, we know how this should give us hope in hopeless times. We know how this should move us to a posture of grace in a world full of brokenness, but does it move us to party? We should be leading our culture and telling the best stories and being creative and having feasts of biblical proportions. Even the phrase, right? A feast of a biblical proportion is a really big feast. And whether that's like surf and turf or whether that's just ramen for days. I'm talking like college ramen. Rest and reflect to not be anxious. The longest meals with the most laughter, even in the midst of the storm. So many historical accounts, so many historical accounts of rejoicing, dancing when the room is on fire as followers of Jesus because we know where our hope lies. Revelation 21 and 22, the end of the story, God making all things new is essentially God DJing a wedding. This is the picture, God in the midst of all the people, the most beautiful thing in the universe. Who can imagine anything better? The images that Jesus has used throughout his teaching are banquets and feasts and celebrations. These are his analogies again and again and again. What do we do at parties such as these? We eat and we talk and we dance and we enjoy each other and we make space for the outsider at our table. And so, on this goofily titled Sunday, like it's part of the liturgical calendar, PVD Fest Sunday, <laughs> we come to the table. Now, if I had my druthers this week, we would like just, 
we do a meal part two and extend a big table out here and have tons of food on it. And, but we went like two hours plus last week, so we're going to just kind of rein it in this Sunday. But I want to invite the communion servers to come up. And in some ways, what we're doing is sort of acting out this meal when we come together. We're acknowledging there's not a divide between the sacred and the secular. And we're taking the bread and we're taking wine. Normal, everyday things that we might have in a meal. And we're being reminded that every good gift comes from him. We're being reminded that through each other and through the party and through the celebration and through the rejoicing, we can taste and see that the Lord is good. And we can ingest and remember love made flesh and blood in front of us. It has been a dinner table over the last two years that God has used in a central way to allow my family not to like barely survive during a pandemic and during uncertain church things and during massive decision fatigue and watching friends like walk away from the faith and walk away from their spouse. It's been a hard season for many of us. Those things would have put me in like survival mode and it was a dinner table in part that the Lord used to revive my soul. I pray you don't hear something like this and go, yeah, it's good to remember like God likes a party. Like what does it mean to build these things into your life to celebrate the goodness of our God? To allow worship. I'm not talking about like what so often can happen at like a, at a PVD fest, like where it's like rest becomes avoidance and numbing rest becomes escape instead of becoming more rooted and becoming more open to love and refreshment. It's something that doesn't leave us with a proverbial hangover, but actually leaves us with a space of waking up, ready to charge into a broken world full of laughter and hope and freedom because we know who God is and what he's done. So let us eat. Let us eat together.